Okay, hello everyone and welcome to ACTUS Radio, the nation's only radio program dedicated to the clinical documentation improvement profession. ACTUS Radio is a bi-weekly program dedicated to bringing you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and to ACTUS. Today, Wednesday, January 25th, marks our 60th show. So as always, my name is Brian Murphy, Director of ACTUS, the Association of Clinical Documentation Improvement Specialists. And I'm your host for today's program, CDI's role in clarifying malnutrition. I'm joined today by both a guest and a frequent co-host. You probably know Alan Frady. Alan's an RN, BSN, CCDS, and CCS, and is our CDI education specialist here at HC Pro and for Actus. Just briefly, Alan teaches uh, CDI boot camps for us and serves as a subject matter expert. He's an accomplished consultant with a background in coding and documentation. Experience includes 12 years as a coding consultant, two years as a coding director at the Medical College of Georgia, and six years as a CDI consultant, and his nursing experience includes work as a case manager and in cardiovascular care and ICU and telemetry. So welcome to the program, Alan. Thank you, Brian. It's good to be here. All right. Um, as you may know, we had originally planned a show, you may have seen me plug it on the last show, on implementing severe sepsis bundle. Uh, that show had to be postponed. We are going to bring that back on February 22nd. So not the next show, but the show following. So if you're anticipating that topic, um, we had to make a change, but we're certainly going to bring back uh, that program on Feb 22nd. I'm looking forward to that, but I'm also looking forward to, to today's program, of course, with, uh, with Alan. So we're going to go ahead and, as I always do, start with a poll uh, related to today's topic. Um, pulling it up on the screen there. Uh, we'll come back. Uh, we ask you to take it now. We'll come back to the results in just a few minutes. So the poll reads, what is the biggest problem you have with the proper diagnosis and reporting of malnutrition? Is it, um, huh, it looks like it's coming up with the wrong poll. Are you guys all seeing a quality related poll there? <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure if that poll got loaded correctly. Well, we'll have to uh, close that poll out if I'm correct. That's the wrong one in there. Yeah, well, minor technical snafu there. We uh, this is uh, this was last week's poll, but we will we will come back and uh, ask this poll at a later date. But um, that's okay. We'll move on with the show. That's what that's what we do here at Actus Radio. So as I mentioned, our guest today is Alan Frady. Again, welcome to the program, Alan, and thanks for being a part of Actus Radio again. Um, you know, to, so today's program, we're going to be going through, obviously, malnutrition, uh, some of the issues folks have with it, and uh, a really interesting recent report. Um, as we go through it, we're going to be looking at a few slides that Alan has for a new boot camp he's going to be developing with us. He is working on now and will be debuting later this year, so we'll be sharing some additional slides and I think you mentioned now these are a work in progress, so but we'll give people a sneak sneak preview of those slides. Um, but maybe we'll start, Alan, with some of the the recommended criteria for diagnosis of malnutrition. I think a lot of people know about like aspirin and stuff, but is there anything critical or specifically any specific helpful nuances you think CDI should know about these criteria that will help 
when they're doing their reviews of this diagnosis? Well, yes and no. And with malnutrition, like so many of these controversial diagnoses, it's sort of like, you know, where do we begin? Uh, one thing just to keep in mind, if you're looking at malnutrition, make sure, especially if you're looking at Aspen criteria, remember that there's three different levels. There is the mild, moderate, or severe, and make sure that you're in the right grid whenever you're trying to look at malnutrition, for example, for severe. But, <coughs> excuse me, the biggest thing I would say with malnutrition is that there really is no nationally recognized standard. And as a consequence, we see many homegrown definitions which are facility specific and as a result can vary wildly from one to another. Right. Aspen criteria has some severe limitations when it comes to applying them in inpatient short-term acute settings such as a hospital, especially if you are looking at the missing historical data, uh, if you don't have trend line information, or if the patient has certain disease states. All right. You want me to pull up any of your of your slides as we go through this, Alan? What do you think? Yeah, we can go ahead and put up. If you can start with slide one, which has the basic definition. Um, I think it was the first slide in the in the in the in the material that I sent out. And by the way, these yeah. some of these slides are from the new boot camp, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes. So these are in progress. Uh, it's still under development. All, All right. right. So here we have our basic definition excuse me, of malnutrition. And we've got some statistics on the occurrence rate, which we're, gonna, which we're actually going to talk about in just a few minutes. As I mentioned, Aspen has some severe limitations, at least in my opinion, when it comes to looking at the criteria for the inpatient acute setting. Aspen consists of basically three elements. And actually, Brian, if you want to jump to the third slide. Gotcha, okay. Aspen basically consists of three elements, which are the biometric measurements, the trending information for intake, BMI, weight, and the physical assessment for grip strength and fluid balance. And if you do not have the historical information from the previous visits or previous nutritional assessments, then the trending information becomes somewhat unreliable as you must rely on the patient's ability to recall the data, which is often impaired in the elderly, the acutely ill, or the neurological populations. Likewise, these biometric measurements of weight, body fat, and muscle mass are of little value if you don't have the trend line comparison data from historical measurements. And the fluid balance cannot be accurately obtained in patients with liver, renal, cardiac, and certain metabolic diseases. And as you can see, the one we have up here, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, you have to be in the right table. This is the one for severe. If you were looking at mild or moderate, and also if you're trying to look at their chronic disease state, you'll see that the trend information that you need goes for, in some cases, several months, at least over the course of a month. Now, for the acute illness, it has five days, but it's hard to really get malnutrition in just five days, uh, in my opinion. So this makes it just really, really complicated. If you look at grip strength, for example, as I said, that can't be assessed in patients with neurological disorders, traumatic injuries, or patients with certain degenerative problems or certain uh, disabilities. So I think that although it is somewhat the standard, it has somewhat limited use in the inpatient acute setting. Mm -hmm. Good stuff there, Alan. You know, you, you were just, I think you were referring to some recent statistics you might want to talk about a little bit today on of how much of the geriatric population uh, actually suffers from malnutrition. You know, this is 
I, I know there there is some talk out in the industry that it could be overreported. We're going to be sharing uh, an OIG report in a little bit, but given the the prevalence in the in this geriatric population, can you share those numbers? And do you believe, in fact, that malnutrition could be being underreported industry wide? Yeah, and if you want to jump back to slide two. Um, Yep. I would say depending on which sources you look up, the incidence of malnutrition can be as low as 12%. That's in the general community with where people are generally healthy and they're living independently. But it can also be as high as 60% for the institutionalized elderly who has both acute and chronic illness states. If you take the subset of the elderly which are acutely ill, you can expect malnutrition to be about as high as 50%. Um, and let's jump back one more slide. I think where maybe I have that on the first slide. And that's according to Medscape. It can be as high as 50% for that population. If you further take the subset of the elderly which are not living independently, so they're institutionalized, and they have both acute and chronic illness states, you can expect it to be in some cases as high as 60%. And that's according to uh, the National Institutes of Health. So in the inpatient setting, we do not report this condition anywhere near that rate, and we are certainly not curing all of these patients of malnutrition simply by admitting them to the hospital. So yes, I would say that if anything, we underreport this diagnosis nationally. Right, right, interesting. Yeah, you know, speaking of you know the incidence of over or underreporting, you know, I mean, I, I was just referring. I've I've heard a lot of evidence. You know, anecdotal from emails and et cetera, but also auditors' uh, reports denying or removing malnutrition because of a lack of evidence of treatment. You know, the things that constitute a reportable secondary diagnosis, like monitoring nursing care, et cetera. So, what I'd like to do is make this pull up for our audience here. Um, give me just a moment. I hope this works a little better than the poll did. It should. Um, I'm going to pull up a recent OIG report, if it will allow me to do so. Um, here we go. There it is. So this report is um, from the OIG. And by the way, if you haven't subscribed to the OIG listserv, I recommend our all of our listeners go ahead and do that. It's, it's value, very valuable. It's uh, a free service. Um, you can sign up for it at, at oig.hhs.gov. Uh, but this is a recent report um, looking at Northside Medical Center and how they um, build Medicare inpatient claims with, again, severe malnutrition that you were talking about earlier, Alan. Um, really interesting report. It, it, really um, hones in on diagnose, diagnosis codes 261 and 262, uh, which are nutritional marasmus and other severe protein calorie malnutrition. So it's not the, it's not the quashier core that has been in the news. It, again, it is severe um, malnutrition, but different codes, which quashier core is 260. So we're looking at 261 and 262. And the OIG um, said that of, the, of 100 uh, randomly sampled claims they asked for, they said there was an error on 98 out of 100, um, specifically mentioning that the, um, either malnutrition should not have existed at all or it should have been a lower form of malnutrition. And so they uh, recommended that 
this hospital refund of the Medicare program, $1.2 million. Um, really interesting report. What I wanted to, um, what I think is even makes it more interesting is the, is the CDI program is mentioned prominently in here. It's and you know it really provides a lot of detail in the hospital's response, um, how their CDI program works to clarify malnutrition. And to me, it looked like a very very good, uh, robust um, program for working with nutritionists, et cetera. But maybe as I find that part of the report, Alan, you, you could talk a little bit about, you know, are, are you seeing, hearing any of these um, denials, and what are some strategies that you have or would recommend from your background for strengthening claims from possible denial um, and or appealing malnutrition denials? Yeah. Well, Brian, I read through this entire report whenever I first heard about it, and I was hoping to find some some documentation in the report of exactly what it was in the documentation that was missing right. that made them decide that it wasn't malnutrition or that it should have been done to a lower level. And unfortunately, perhaps not all that surprising, couldn't find anything in the document itself of any kind of specificity in order to help me say, oh, this is exactly the indicator they were looking at or this is exactly the, the, the stumbling block. There's a lot of generalities in here, a lot of recommendations, and a lot of high-level language in this report, but nothing specific. So obviously it's really hard to say what happened with these findings without having first seen the records. The OIG, however, did uh, have in their statement of work that they would be reviewing claims reported, as you mentioned, with Quash Your Core, a very rare presentation in the U.S. The, the OIGs, these OIG findings are from previous years under the ICD-9 rules and during that time, the default code for severe malnutrition, if it was unspecified, was the same code that you get if you have a diagnosis of nutritional marasmus. So I always flinch whenever I read these press releases such as this one, which cite the facility as having reported nutritional marasmus, because most likely they did not. What happened was the coder provided the default code for unspecified severe malnutrition and that just also happens to be the same code by default in ICD-9 as the nutritional marasmus, which is which if it were nutritional marasmus, it would in fact be a very another very rare form of malnutrition for the United States. But that code doesn't mean nutritional marasmus; it also means unspecified severe malnutrition. So that's one criticism. Um, go ahead. Did you have a comment? No, I, I, I think that's important to point out that this was I-9, and um, some of it is, is due to just the way the, the grouping logic works um, for these codes. Correct, so. but we have, we have similar problems in ICD-10. You know, that, that hasn't completely gone away where the diagnosis that you're trying to report doesn't end up seeming to fit once you get to the code indexing. Uh, but, but my other criticism here is I want to question this argument that malnutrition is not clinically significant on the grounds of the UHDDS definition of a secondary diagnosis. The question becomes in many cases simply, is malnutrition clinically significant, i.e., does it meet reporting criteria? And the standards for reporting has always been that reportable conditions must be evaluated, they must receive diagnostic testing or treatment, increased nursing services or length of stay. And looking at malnutrition, I would argue that Clinically, it's almost always going to be clinically significant. It's well established that even a mild to moderate level of malnutrition, even a short-term acute malnutrition in an otherwise obese patient 
is going to reduce wound healing capacity. It's going to compromise the immune system, and it can exacerbate medical problems, other medical problems, leading to an increased length of stay, a higher cost of care, and additional medical complications. So my argument here is not without reference. You know, Coding Clinic long ago stated that obesity is always reportable, even, and it's always clinically significant, even if the provider did not evaluate, monitor, or treat it. If for no other reason, obesity is reportable because it increases nursing services. So I would ask the following question. Um, if obesity is reportable due to an increase in nursing services, how is it then that malnutrition, with its known impacts on healing, disease resistance, and as a mechanism for further complicating the treatment of other medical problems, is often cited as not clinically significant by auditors? Um, so I, I, this is going to, never going to go away, the controversy surrounding malnutrition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good stuff, Alan. Um, you know, you, you mentioned being always reportable, and, and, and it is true with obesity. Of course, we'd love to see it with with um, you know severe malnutrition, et cetera, just knowing what what it, as you just mentioned, what type of care goes into these type of patients. But um, is there anything that hospitals can do in the interim until we perhaps maybe see that in the in coding clinic? You know, um, working with nutritionists, nursing and ancillary staff to sort of provide some of that additional um, narrative criteria, um, you know, care, the demonstration of care in the medical record. Do you have any? Absolutely, absolutely. And also remember that just because coding clinic says it's okay to do doesn't mean the auditors won't try to pull it. We still have uh, auditors trying right. to pull yeah. obesity even though coding clinic says you should do it. But while many of these audit companies simply refuse the transparency, they, they refuse to cite their clinical criteria, we often suspect that they are using some version of Aspen criteria. And this would imply that the best practice would be to first have the nutritionist document their assessment in the language, in the criteria of Aspen criteria, and if you want to, if you want to put that slide back up uh, from the um, from the new course, it'll be slide three. But if you have the the nutritionist documented in those terms in the progress notes as a starting point, so that the the nurse can review it and have that as their starting point. But I would also encourage the CDS to then layer a clinical assessment on top of the nutritional findings, looking at things like risk factors, lab findings, and disease states. Um, you know, here what you have in Aspen is, again, the biometric measurements, the historical data, and the physical assessment findings for fluid balance and grip strength. You have some weight loss trending. But in my opinion, it's a very limited uh, assessment based on a very narrow data set and is not a comprehensive assessment of true nutritional status and risk. If you'll jump to slide four, um, you will see additional review, you know, from a nursing clinical type of perspective or anyone with clinical training in CDI. You'll see some of the most applicable disease states and clinical findings likely to be associated with malnourishment, uh, including things like GI problems, malignancies, status post-surgery, MPO status, hypermetabolic disease states appetite suppression, and then the, the physical findings of the poor wound healing and the immunocompromised status, uh, dysphagia, inability to eat, and so on and so forth, and then to really get a comprehensive review, if you'll go to the next slide, uh, you will actually see some of the review that should be done on a socioeconomic mental axis, looking at things like depressed state, institutionalized state, financial difficulties, cultural restrictions in some cases, which I think 
is going to become an increasing concern. Uh, financial difficulties, alcohol and drug abuse, and then you do have the findings of low BMI or possibly an unintentional weight loss, which mirrors some of the Aspen criteria. Additional lab findings that you might find in the chart, chart that's not in the slide would be things like chronic vitamin deficiencies or electrolyte imbalances and evidence of organ failures associated with hypermetabolic states or increased healing requirements. I think those would also be relevant in the discussion. So using the CDS clinical review combined with the, the trained nutritionist assessment that we saw back on slide three, you get more of a comprehensive query that starts to come into focus. If all of these things were better documented and tied to the diagnosis of malnutrition, true enough, you might be bringing a flamethrower to a knife fight, but I don't believe you would, ha you would carry as much risk in the way of audit findings if you did that. Right. Flamethrower to a knife fight. I like it. All right. Um, <laughs> Alan, can we, be, can, we, can we wrap up a bit here with just a few minutes? We're, we're already at, at time, but yep. the new class you're developing, we, we referenced, you know, I know we we have a name, I think we're calling it Mastering Clinical Concepts in CDI, maybe it's even changed as you work through it, but um, you know, the slides we looked at today could be a part of it. Again, this is all a work in progress, we want people to know, but um, could you give us a little advanced preview of the class, in including what it might cover, intended audience, and, and maybe a little about how it could help with the issues we've covered today? Certainly, and you can just flip through and sort of demo these slides as I'm talking. I'm not necessarily going to, we're probably not going to have time to speak to each slide, but first of all, let me say we're very excited about this boot camp. It's going to be as much fun as for the instructors as it is for the learners. And let's address who this new boot camp is for. If you're a brand new CDS who does not yet understand DRGs, does not know the rules for how to write a compliant query, this is likely not the boot camp for you. We recommend you take the basic four-day boot camp instead. But if you've had previous training and are looking to take your practice to the next level, if you're looking to go from query to collaborative, uh, then I believe the new boot camp might be the best option. In addition to that, anyone who took, took a boot camp in ICD-9, uh, or roughly any time between 2007 and late 2013, I would say it's time for you to take a refresher course you're due. So we're going to build in all the new ICD-10 guidelines and relevant coding clinics into this new course so that it doubles not only as an advanced course or an intermediate, but also as a, as a refresher course for those needing to relearn uh, what has changed but not needing to relearn the basics of CDI. Mm -hmm. And you can see from the slide up, and you can just flip through these, we are going to emphasize things like critical thinking, looking beyond single indicator queries. Here we define septic shock and we talk about the surviving sepsis uh, campaign bundle in the next slide. By the way, that was just updated hot off the press last week. I'm happy to say it didn't change that much but we will try to have the most cutting edge material in the course at all times. And uh, you know, we tackle all of this. I think we've got another critical thinking slide after this on sepsis. Remember, not all SIRS is sepsis. You need to have the bigger clinical picture that includes treatment risk factors and uh, evidence of organ failures, possibly. And then on the next slide, I think we jump into respiratory. Here we're citing some of the work of Dr. Richard Pinson, who who authored our CDI pocket guide and some of his articles that he's published academically. He's probably the number one source, in my opinion, for respiratory uh, failure when you're looking at this. So it's a, uh, we will cover this and then to a deeper level because we're going to get into things like the PF ratio and what is it and what does it mean at the different ranges and how do you calculate it. Uh, back on the shock slide, I don't know if you noticed, but we also are talking about 
we're going to get into how do you calculate a mean arterial pressure and what do you do when a patient presents atypically and doesn't meet the normal criteria. So we're going to have those more advanced discussions. I'm very excited about it. All right. Well, thanks, Alan, for that preview of the class and for walking us through some important issues related to malnutrition today. Um, we're going to quickly jump uh, to our In the News segment. Again, uh, In the News is a regular segment featuring the latest news and industry updates um, relevant to the CDI profession. I just want to talk briefly here. This, this could be uh, an entire show on its own as well as a series of shows. Um, it's an opinion piece, I want to stress that it is an opinion piece, um, by Trey Lacharate. Trey is a uh, former ACTS Advisory Board member. Um, he is going to be presenting at the conference, um, 2017 conference coming up in May on uh, RAC auditors and RAC defense, uh, as well as a physician advisor pre-con. He'll be presenting part of that. Uh, but this is an opinion piece Trey wrote about the official guidelines for coding and reporting. You can read it here on the Actus website. There is a URL here which you should be able to see, but I will provide that in the show notes as I always do. Uh, the article, of course, um, cites section one, subsection A, and the infamous, now infamous, item 19, <laughs> the new official guidelines for coding and reporting, stating uh, the assignment of a diagnosis code is based on the provider's diagnostic statement that the condition exists provider's statement that the patient has a particular condition is sufficient and that code assignment is not based on clinical criteria used by the provider to establish the diagnosis. So Trey obviously has some really strong opinions on this, which is why I say it is an opinion piece. Um, definitely worth reading, but is uh, concerned, as I, that's probably too weak of a word, he's, he's a little bit uh, maybe outraged <laughs> that that this sort of drives um, um, a wall between um, coding professionals and CDI, and in particular coders and auditors. You know, this it sort of establishes the supposition, as he says, that coders cannot clinically validate, but it allows auditors or auditors who can clinic perform clinical validation to do so. And that, to me, it, it almost makes coders sort of uh, passive reporters of established data, and doesn't really get to allow them to get into query. Um, he recommends that hospitals still do this. Obviously, this is what CDIs do. Um, it doesn't undermine anything that this, the clinic that the CDI does when they're performing a clinical validation review and can query a physician. But um, it is sort of a, a guideline that continues to be problematic for the industry. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, Alan, in our in our last couple minutes here. Um, I believe you've written about this same issue not too long ago for ICD-10 Monitor and elsewhere. I'm sure you have your own thoughts and comments on it. Yeah, I largely agree with Trey's sentiments here, as I often do. I've said on more than one occasion, it's a financially good time to be in the denial business, I think. Uh, his tone seems to be flatly disagreeing with any situation in which an unsupported diagnosis should get reported. If coders take that position, though, they, they are basically in violation of coding guidelines. So you have to have some moderation. We're, we're recommending that diagnoses which are unsupported be queried every time, all the time. But the reality is if the physician doesn't respond to the query, the coder is going to be stuck reporting it. They cannot censor the diagnosis. And I think this is going to underscore another one of my soapbox issues. And that's the importance of having a good, strong, involved physician advisor who 
they can provide a secondary clinical validation type of a review. And in conjunction with a good escalation policy, you can start to handle all of these seemingly contradictory rules. Mm -hmm. It's a good solution. All right, again, I encourage you all to check out this article on the ACTUS website after the call to read it in full. I'm going to wrap up here with just a brief ACTUS update. Again, ACTUS update is a uh, regular feature bringing you the latest updates on what's going on inside of ACTUS. Um, you probably have seen a few emails we've sent out. If you haven't, I recommend maybe checking a spam filter, but our, our members have been receiving um, just some notifications about the ACTUS advisory board application period. Uh, again, we have a, um, a, a group of ACTUS advisory board members, uh, 12 of them, find, read about them here on our uh, membership tab and under boards and committees. These are volunteers. Um, they help us uh, with a number of important um, uh, benefits for our members. They help us develop white papers, position papers. They serve on our quarterly calls. Uh, they will be speaking at the conference on a panel session. Um, we're looking for volunteers. You know, this is a volunteer position and what happens is um, four folks are elected by a popular vote of the ACTUS member, uh, membership each year. So that application period has been open since early January. It is now closing on January 30th. So if you are interested in pursuing board service, we're still looking for volunteers. Um, check out this URL here. I'll again put it in the show notes, but there is a link to an application form. I do recommend that you just check out the qualifications, responsibilities, and the process for nomination election first. It's linked to here in the article. Uh, we, we do have some criteria for board service that you have to meet, uh, but it is a, it's a challenging, but it's a fun and rewarding um, position. I like to think most of our board members would, would agree with that. You can certainly get in touch with them as well if you have any questions about it. Um, they're all very actively engaged on the board. I'll just pull them up quickly here. Um, here you go. So you know you you can certainly reach out to them directly with emails or myself if you have questions about board service. Uh, it is a rewarding position, and uh, but again, it does close end of day Monday, January thirtieth. So if you're thinking about it, hop off that fence and and apply. All right, I'm going to go ahead and uh, and wrap things up here. Pull up our. Uh, final slide that we have to, to share to get people um, up to date on the next show. Let's see. Here we go. So I hope you can join us again in two weeks, of course, for our next program. We'll be back on Wednesday, February 8th. Uh, Alan, you mentioned uh, Richard Pinson. He's going to be the show, uh, the, the guest on our next show on acute respiratory failure. So this is his wheelhouse. I've received several questions from listeners of the show related to respiratory failure. And so I thought we would do a special show on some of these frequently asked questions or FAQs. Um, so if you if you sent those questions in or if you're just um, struggling with this diagnosis, I recommend you give it a listen because Richard Pinson is a uh, an expert on this. And of course, he's the author of our CDI pocket guide as well. But as always, if you have any suggestions for future guests, ideas about the format of the show, please send me an email. You can get me at uh, bmurphy at actus.org. Well, that will do it. Thanks again, Alan, for being on. 
and uh, we'll see you back here in two weeks. Take care, everyone. Thanks. Thanks, Brian.